Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on this episode we speak about taking your own needs and turning them into a product used by thousands of product managers around the world. How a London-based play on words turns into a leading online community for product managers. We also talk about two types of executive dysfunction. How leaders of product companies sometimes fail to build strong product organisations. And also what it's like being diagnosed with ADHD. What that means day to day and the opportunities and challenges of working with it in product. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is the one and only Jana Basto, former traveling pet food sales rep, co-founder and CEO of PodPad, inventor of the Now Next Later Roadmap, co-founder of Mind the Product, speaker, trainer, mentor, recently diagnosed with ADHD, though her personal motto is JFDI. So let's JF get on with this interview. Hi, Jana, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks so much for the warm welcome. That was great. <laughs> Always front load it and the rest is, the rest is just all downhill. <laughs> so... First of all, we, we had Andrea from PodPad on recently, and in the vein of the old Canadian quiz show, Mr. and Mrs., in your own words, who are PodPad and what problem do you solve? Yeah, so PodPad is a tool for product teams, and it helps them make sure that they're actually solving the right problems. Uh, it was a tool that uh, originally started building when I was a product manager myself and needed something to help me do my own job. Uh, it was something that allowed me to build a roadmap that my team and my bosses and my customers could see. I would talk about uh, the the problems we were solving and how they're going to help help us hit our objectives, uh, but also connect it to the experiments that we're trying to run and to the feedback that we're hearing from the customers so we could actually close the loop. Uh, nothing like it existed, so we started building it. And it's now a tool that's used by thousands of product people around the world. Did you start building that on the side of your of your day job or... Because obviously you, you you since then made it into a company and uh, as you say and uh, selling it to lots of people. But was that something that for a while kind of ran alongside your 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 day gig? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, really early days of it. It was just this initial idea that I'd tried to hack together myself out of Excel and whatever I could do. And then I I, I tried a few different variations with various mock-up tools and came to a standstill with it because I realized that I couldn't actually build anything until I met my <laughs> co-founder, Simon, who was very, very like-minded, could see the need for a tool like this, but had complementary skills because he could build back-end code. And so we decided to work together on it. And so I built the front end of ProdPad. Uh, and this was back when you could build something out of jQuery and Bootstrap and duct tape, and it was fine. <laughs> and he built the back end, and we went from there. And initially, for the first year, it didn't even have a name. It was just this tool that we used internally only that helped us do our own jobs, leading our own product teams. And the second year, was uh, we started getting it more visible to the product people around us. It was around that same time that the Mind the Product community had started up as well. And so we had a wealth of product people around us in our network, and we were able to share it out to find out uh, whether it was a good fit or not. And turns out it was actually something that was needed and wanted. And so we built a small web presence for ProdPad, realized that people actually did want something like this, and uh, eventually got up our guts to quit our jobs and go focus on it full time. Well, firstly, I'm just going to say that I have absolute respect for jQuery. And I think that anyone that's using anything more complicated than jQuery should uh, probably have a word with themselves. But also that must have been a bit of a leap to actually 
you know, take that into prime time on its own, right? Because obviously you're in an established position in, in a company and, and then you've got to go out and, 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 you know, be a founder and be an entrepreneur. And, and was, did that come naturally to you or, or was that a bit of a leap? It was, uh, I mean, there's been series of lessons learned along the way. You know, all the things that I assumed about it, uh, obviously blown up in various ways and I've <laughs> relearned how to do everything. But a lot of it actually is a very natural fit. So I was a product manager before in a young startup. And so I got to see how the the product and basically how the business itself ran. And so a lot of that transferred over quite naturally to when we started ProdPad itself, which itself was a very product-focused company from the get-go. But obviously, as the company grows and it changes shape, there's been different milestones and different uh, different stages that we've had to go through and different skills that I've had to pick up as a CEO. Right. And and I guess the, the question then would be, like, how, how much of that did you manage to just handle yourself to start with and, uh, and how long did it take you to get people on board to help you with some of the detail? <laughs> well, the first couple of years, it was just myself and Simon. We were just building ProdPad as this tool that we were building from our bedrooms and putting out there for our first customers. And it was gaining revenue and it was gaining customers, but not at a rate that would allow us to pay ourselves or anything like that, which is why we couldn't hire in anybody else in the first couple of years. After a while, we got to the point where we could actually bring in our first employees, our first office, you know, start doing our first growth campaigns and things like that. And that was a step change for the business because we started realizing what would happen when we pushed on various levers that we hadn't pushed on before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But obviously, as you say before that, you were product manager working for a company and, and, and you know, working for someone else. So how did you get into product in the first place? Like many product managers of my cohort, I fell into it completely accidentally. <laughs> I was one of those kids who dabbled in a whole bunch of things and was good-ish at a number of things and interested in a lot of different things, but I wasn't a master of anything. And so I ended up taking a job out of college, which was essentially being a customer support rep at a tech company, medium-sized tech company that had already gone through its IPO and was was profitable, but it, they didn't have a product team at all. They'd, they'd never had a product person, even though it was a product-based company, technically. And I'd never heard of the term product manager, but what I was good at was talking to the customers and helping them out with using the system, using the app, and talking to the developers and communicating those customer needs and back and forth. And so I became a bit of a, the IT contact there. And eventually my boss came to me and said that he liked the way that I called bullshit when I saw it <laughs> and offered to make me a junior product manager. And I was like, well, that's great. That sounds good. What is it? <laughs> and I quite literally went back to my desk and had to Google what it was and figure it out from there. And what, what they'd done, they'd plucked me from customer support. I was relatively new with the company at this point in time. And they plucked somebody more senior out of development and made him senior product manager and put us in a room together and just told us to go. We had no training, no guidance, no nothing at all, really. And we just had to figure it out. And honestly, for the next few years, we did it all wrong. We did all the, <laughs> we had all the bad habits, all the product management faux pas. But it was a really good training ground, really good learning ground for myself. And it was there that I started developing this idea of ProdPad, of tools to actually help make my job easier. Because I had a sense that the things that I was doing was wrong, but I didn't know how to articulate that and didn't know how to frame that properly yet 
Yeah, I think it's the dream of anyone that's actually working sort of in the trenches. To the, 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 every, every single person that, that does that is going to have some level of frustration with all of the tools that they're using. So I think that you know, I've sat there in the past thinking, wouldn't it be good if, and, and then obviously never done anything with it. So obviously it's it's great to actually have that that drive and, and, and that ability to, to go out and do that. So yeah, obviously off the back of that then, and, and something that, that we've spoken about before is the uh, the legendary Now Next Later roadmap, which you've, uh, you proudly take ownership of its creation. So so what was the story behind that and, and have you patented it? <laughs> so two really good questions there. So one is um, the first version of ProdPad actually got the roadmap really wrong because it was replicating what I was doing at my previous job, which was giving a roadmap that pleased my boss and the, <laughs> the customers around me. And it was basically taking this template that I'd been using and sharing around for a while. And every time I took this template, it was this time-based timeline roadmap, Gantt chart style thing uh, that I'd made to look really pretty. And every time I shared this with my boss or anybody else, I always got, you know, essentially a pat on the head and somebody would say, yeah, that looks great. Now go build it. And I was never able to fully deliver everything on that roadmap. And I thought that was a failing of me as as a product manager. I thought that was more of an organizational challenge. I thought it was more of, you know, something that was less universal. Now, one of the things that ProdPad did, the early, early version of it, was digitize that roadmap into something that you could drag and drop. And that's, you know, my jQuery skills were absolutely stretched to the limits <laughs> when you could drag and drop ideas and stretch them out and do all sorts of different things with them on the roadmap. We put this out to customers and, you know, the first few people that we showed it to, you know, some of them absolutely loved it. They loved this idea of being able to have this pretty looking roadmap that reflected, you know, the, the ideas that they had and they could export it and show it to their bosses and that sort of thing. But after the first four to six weeks, we started getting feedback back where people would say they want to take this segment of the roadmap, so the stuff that was in, in the immediate term or that had just passed, and pick it up and move it all forward by a month. I wanted to like a multi-select drag and drop. And had I just listened to my customers, I would have just had this multi-select drag and drop thing where you could just pick up and shift your roadmap by a month. But we asked the five whys, like, why are you wanting to move everything down? Why have you not delivered everything? Right? Why is that? We got down to the, to the fact that no one was delivering on their roadmap. These roadmaps were all a lie. <laughs> and when we came down to that, we thought, well, why are we making a roadmap that's setting all these people up for failure? And so myself and Simon sat down and had to admit that what we'd built was not the right thing and that we were going to throw out the code, which was really painful because we'd spent months of effort on that, and decide to redo it into something else. And what we came upon was this idea of, initially, Simon mapped out this thought of confidence over time, right? Um, almost like a, a sort of a way of uh, charting things out. And we thought we talked about things like the cone of uncertainty and concepts like that. And we came upon and agreed upon trying out this three bucket thing, current, near term, future. And we would just allow you to create a card, as we called it, and add some details to that card and describe what was going to be happening for each of those different periods. And over time, we got that out to our initial customers. And at first, we weren't sure if we could actually even call it a roadmap because it didn't look like a roadmap. It certainly didn't look like any roadmaps that were out there. But it still solved the same fundamental problems that roadmaps did, which was allowing you to communicate what the overall 
strategy is and check and uh, address any problems that are coming up with your team. And so we decided to label it roadmap. Okay, we well, kept the label. We just flipped out the, the timeline version for this new three bucketed version, called it the time horizon roadmap. And people really took to it because what we realized it did, it gave people permission to change their roadmapping habits. Whereas in the past, if you looked up roadmap, you only got timeline roadmaps. That's what you were expected to do. This all of a sudden said, well, if you want to do a roadmap that doesn't look like that, that doesn't trap you, here's one. And it says roadmap. It's from a legit company. We're legit. Let's see. And so you can make this roadmap and you're not going to be stuck following this trail of this path of features that may or may not actually solve the right problems. And by listening to our customers over and over again, we started iterating audits and realizing that we could add things like objectives. We could uh, start connecting it to the ideas, which you know allowed you to see more granularity in your roadmap. And that's how it evolved into the roadmap that you see today. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, obviously we've spoken about this before, but like, it, that's obviously a really common story that I, that I see all, of, all around the place, like this whole idea that there's this almost false certainty given to customers by putting specific dates on, but also the fact that they immediately have the temptation to start selling those dates, which in a company that's doing lots of complicated things might not actually work out at all and might not work out at all for very legitimate reasons. So I think that the concept is is really sound but how do you how do you sell that into or i mean i guess you don't have to specifically yourself sell it into because you're selling software to people that have to sell it into but like how do you advise selling that into people that are kind of addicted to this kind of false safety net of of having like a really well structured date based roadmap yeah it's such a good question it's one that we get all the time so always happy to speak to that so whenever you are asked to show dates on your roadmap, whenever you're asked to give delivery dates on something, it's always important to ask why. Now, we don't live in la-la land, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have dates on anything because sometimes things do have dates that you need to abide by and work to, right? So if it's something regulatory, like when GDPR happened, everyone had a, a dated item on the roadmap. That's something you've got to work to, and it's an outside force, and you've just got to deal with it, right? Um, and sometimes it might be strategic as well. Like, let's say that you are building for the Christmas rush, and you know, if you don't have something out in time for the, um, you know, the, the Christmas sales rush, then the value is zero for your delivery if you deliver after that point. So that becomes strategically important for your business. Now, it's okay if your roadmap has occasional date-driven things on it, right? Again, it's not la-la land. But the problem is when you have everything that's date-driven or you're heavily weighted towards date-driven, because what's actually happening is that every time you agree to a delivery date, you have to put in the groundwork, the, the planning to make sure that you've got everything up front to deliver to that, which means adding in buffer and adding in whatever sort of excess to make sure that you don't slip on that delivery date. And it's also carving into your discovery time. So if you have a finite amount of time and you have to split it between discovery and delivery, you want to spend as much time doing discovery and not delivery. Now, if you're spending like 80% of your time doing discovery and 20% of your time is focused on uh, delivery type stuff, then fine. But uh, you know, I see some teams that are closer to the flip of that, right? They're spending 80% of their time dealing with requests that come in from clients to build features that may or may not even be the right things to build. 
And for companies like those, you start to realize that they're not actually operating as product-led companies. They're operating like agencies. And the product managers aren't product managers at all. They're really actually just project managers. I know this because I've been there. I've worked for a company that very much operated in that model, and it wasn't a healthy place to work. One of the questions that comes up from companies like that is, are there some types of company that, because of the type of company they are, the type of set, uh, the type of you know, maybe procurement processes they have to go through, or the type of uh, clients that they have, and, and I'm specifically thinking of perhaps B2B or companies that have very technical integration requirements and stuff like that, like whether those companies can all always be truly product-led or, or whether, whether they're always going to have some element of, of sort of sales-led thinking and, and, and whether it's just a case of trying to sort of mitigate that as much as possible uh, or, or whether you think that all companies can very legitimately be very kind of flexible and, and product-led first. The, the key thing is, is whenever a company is being led by one division or the other is to be conscious of it and to use it to their advantage. So, you know, if you're going to be a uh, sales-led organization, then understand what it actually does to your ability to do discovery, for example. It means that your team is not going to be able to spend their time figuring out the best way to solve the bigger problems, but it does mean that they'll be able to solve specific problems for interesting clients. And hopefully, this business is charging appropriately for that time, right? If you're going to act like an agency, then properly act like one and you know add the extra zeros and, and charge for your time because you're never going to be able to scale. You're never going to be able to do the discovery and find the interesting problems for the wider world. You're always going to be solving for that one next client or that one next client, right? And there's no shame in having a business that is predicated on that one next client. There are brilliant ways to make money in sustainable ways there, but it does mean that you're making different business decisions. It's a different business model. And unfortunately, for the most part, agencies don't scale. It's companies like those that end up growing no more quickly than how fast the team can grow. Because what you're doing is you're selling the team's time. And unless you're able to sell a bigger and bigger premium on that time, as in raise your prices, uh, you're not going to be able to ever hit a point where you get that hockey stick growth because you've cracked a problem for the wider world. In order to do that, you need to spend the time in discovery. You need to cast a wide net and figure out, well, what are the problems we could solve and how might we go about solving them? And is this the best way to solve it? Which takes time and takes dedication that you can't be spending delivering one feature after the other for individual clients. Yeah, then there's the old cliche of the feature factory, but also I guess based on what you said, there's also this kind of risky area where where you're acting as if you are a product company because you know you're, you're you have a, a team and a, and a, and a you know, roadmap and stuff like that, and you're and you're maybe staffed and and focusing on trying to be a product company. But if you're always being led, like you say, by that next sale, then you never actually you've kind of got the worst of both worlds, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And what tends to happen is that you're Attempting to outsource your discovery, you're sort of hoping that the client is going to ask for this feature that happens <laughs> to be the best thing and that you will be able to resell to the next client, which I'm sure has happened in some cases, right? Some companies probably have been able to do that. But when you do see that, remember, you're seeing survivorship bias. Remember how many companies have just died along that path trying to do so, where they end up just scaling super, super slowly because they're building for one client after the other, after the other, 
and never actually finding big, juicy problems to solve. Most companies who end up trying to walk that fine line between being an agency and product company uh, end up getting lured in by the instant cash that agency provides and never actually being able to dedicate that time to being product-led. Cautionary tales when anyone listening from to many companies like that. Uh, so you also set up Mind the Product, the world's largest product management community. So, so how did that get started, and and what made you scratch that itch? Because it feels like you probably would have been pretty busy with with Podpad starting up as well. So, <laughs> so what made you want to do two things at the same time? Uh, well, I mean, I've always been the type of person to, to bite off more than I can chew, and so <laughs> I, you know, I can definitely see. Um, how I got myself into that. Mind the product actually started a little bit before ProdPad really did. I'd always had this idea of something like ProdPad, and I'd had some sketches and diagrams and various prototypes that had been sitting on my own desktop. But it wasn't until, I believe this would have been more than 10 years ago now, I met Simon, my co-founder, Simon Cast, and I told him about this idea that I'd had about running a product camp in London. And he loved the idea and said that he wanted to get involved with it. And so the next day we started chatting and actually doing something about it. And then around that time, somebody said, well, the two of you need to connect to Martin Erickson because he seems to be doing something really similar for same market called Product Tank. And Martin Erickson had just started something up within like a couple of weeks of us, of us starting the product camp. And so long story short, we ended up joining forces later that year. And um, the name Mind the Product came out of us having a conversation around, well, we've created this blog so that we can write about the things that we learn at these little events that we're running. And we want to be able to get product people, including ourselves, to just share stories about what's what we're learning and what we're seeing in the London product scene. So what's a good name for a blog for uh, London-based product managers? And I went, Mind the Gap? Mind the product. And I threw it out there as a total joke, but it was the, it stuck. And, uh, you know, we didn't really think about what happened when we scaled this thing, when we brought it to places like Singapore or San Francisco, where they don't, <laughs> where they don't mind the gap, but that's fine. Uh, it seems to have done just fine as a brand. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been absolutely amazing to see the growth of the community and response from the, the, the community uh, as, as we've been growing. Yeah, and, and obviously, hopefully in 2021, we'll, we'll see some actual events again, because I imagine it's been a pretty tough year to be uh, in the events. Uh, in the events 2020 game. has been a great year if you love a pivot. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> beginning of 2020, uh, Mind the Product had five events planned, five major events planned globally, um, and not to mention all the product tanks, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of product tanks, if you count all of them, running on a monthly basis. And obviously, you know, they all just started falling down one after the other, right? The first one we had to cancel was the Singapore conference, followed by the Hamburg conference, uh, which was supposed to be in May, followed by the San Francisco one in July, right? And so we saw these uh, toppling over one by one. But in the meantime, the team was right behind there, building out the membership options, building out the online training, self-serve training options building out the digital conference options. So the we actually ran two really successful digital conferences. And the big unknown was whether we could replicate that MTPCon feel in a digital sense. And we actually really did capture a lot of that. We had some really, really great feedback from people who loved the uh, what, what, we, what we were able to pull off because we really focused on things like the breakout sessions, as well as having really solid single track 
main content as well. The only thing we couldn't provide anymore was like the the really top end coffee and um, <laughs> you know after party experience, um, you know of like getting out there and like dancing with your fellow product people. But you know we still had a DJ, we still had um, a, you know coffee hour and so many other great things like that. So it all worked out. That sounds great. Although actually, to be fair, uh, given my experience of uh, conference coffee, not mind the product conference coffee, but conference coffee in general, I think that there, there's some small mercies there. Plus the dancing as well. Well, that's that's why we had the coffee cart, right? Like that was one of the um, the, the hills <laughs> that uh, particularly Martin would die on when it came to the, the mind the product brand was that we were not going to have that you know styrofoam coffee cup filter junk, and instead we we're going to have proper baristas serving you flat whites for free throughout the day. And we'll just have a bunch of spots where you can go pick up that really good coffee. So <laughs> we miss that. I miss a good flat white, but you know, keep your eyes peeled for whatever happens in 2021. I'll say one day. So you recently said on Twitter that you've been diagnosed with uh, ADHD. Um, so there's obviously a lot of people with various uh, sort of neurological conditions that go undiagnosed, and in many cases, for for if not for most of, maybe all of their lives. What what made you? go and and get a a diagnosis or get checked out for that yeah yeah i mean in hindsight it was blatantly obvious but (laughs) but it took a lot of guts to actually call the docs and say hey i want to get tested for adhd and i think i probably asked it with about that much confidence and i was really glad that the the doc listened to me and pointed me in the direction of uh, initially a, a a survey thing that I could take to get an initial um, assessment, and I was off the charts, which was not unexpected, uh, and then referred me on to uh, to get properly tested. And for me, it was I, I'd previously had an understanding of ADHD as like this caricature of I, I pictured like Bart Simpson, right? And I, I, I wasn't <laughs> Bart Simpson. I was actually pretty good in school. I wasn't that disruptive kid who you know couldn't sit still or anything like that. And so I'd always sort of had this stigma or this misunderstanding of it, and I didn't think it applied to me. But it it appears differently in different people. Like, for example, I'm heavier on the inattentive side rather than the hyperactive side. I've got a bit of both, but definitely more on the inattentive side. And it came out much more this year. So this year really tested my limits because last year I spent my year mostly traveling around, talking to product people and talking their faces off and <laughs> getting to move around and travel and, you know, um, basically feed my inner, you know, ADHD monkey. And, you know, anytime that I wasn't particularly effective with work, um, which is what they call a, a executive dysfunction, your inability to just handle admin in general, I sort of blamed it on the fact that I was jet lagged or maybe hung over from, you know, a conference party the day before, or I was on a different time zone or, you know, any number of different excuses. I just didn't have time to do everything. And this year, you know, I haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> I don't have, yeah. I don't have a schedule that tells me to be anywhere else. I've got no excuses. I've just, I've got to sit here and do nothing but do my work. And I found that extremely hard. I just found it really difficult to get through a day's work, particularly when I compared myself to the people on my team who are incredibly effective and smart and functioning people. (laughs) And I realized that if I compared myself against the functioning people who I've hired and surround myself with, I had this executive dysfunction. I was like, well, is there something wrong with me? This can't be right. 
And so I, I started testing things. It gave me this controlled environment. I started making sure I didn't have any deficiencies. So I took all my vitamins and set really good habits around that. I quit drinking entirely to make sure it wasn't anything like that. And all that really gave me was more energy, which actually made the problem worse because I got even more fidgety. So that's when I called the doctor. And from the time that I called the doctor to the time I got diagnosed was actually just a matter of weeks, which was really good for me because it meant that I was able to identify it and do something positive with it. How did that make you feel? I mean, you said it made a lot of sense, but did it, did it make you feel better or... Or did you did, did it make you feel worse or, or did you feel kind of the same? Yeah. So as soon as I got confirmation, I, I celebrated, honestly, because it meant that uh, I wasn't just a bit shit at everything. It meant that there was actually <laughs> a word for this weird collection of different traits that all add up to things that I just thought were things that I did or that I was. And turns out can be attributed to ADHD. It's a really, really wide, random set of traits. And it's also meant that it's given me a better vocabulary for things, and it's allowed me to check myself more readily so I can say, ooh, that's this, make sure to catch myself and do something about it. So I can now start setting better habits. I can now start talking about it. I can now get proper help for it as well. So, you know, um, just uh, just last week, I uh, found a, a great executive coach who I'm going to be working with, who's worked with people who have ADHD, for example, and I was able to be open about my diagnosis and you know the, the problems that, that I perceive as caused and everything like that. I've been able to be open with my team as well. And so been able to create new working norms around how I work and how I can be most effective. Um, so it's all really positive. No, that's great. And, and I guess you want, in many ways, it's like, once you know about something, then you then it just it, it enables you to to take action. But but have you been? I mean, are there any other kind of mitigation sort of strategies or plans or things that you that you can do to cope with it? I I think you know are there, you know, are there medications that you take or anything else that, that that you kind of more practically take to to kind of yeah so get through the day yeah so it's a great chance to explore the the test the waters with medication. So there is medication available and I'm so glad I discovered it now. <laughs> I'm only a couple of weeks into it. So we're still in the middle of adjustments and testing it out. And my doc's been really good about letting me chat through what's working and what's not working. It's, it's not a magic fix for everything. I can tell anybody that now, but it's certainly a useful tool to have. And so I'm really glad that I've discovered this route and that alongside better structure and just better coping mechanisms, I think, are going to help me cope with the next year much better than I coped with this year. Uh, that, that's really positive as well. Do, do you think that there are any traits of sort of ADHD that, that are beneficial to, to your work in sort of product management or, or, or running a company? Yeah, hugely. So one of the things that I realized as soon as I posted it out there, I decided to share with Twitter that I'd had this diagnosis because I always find it helpful to to shine a light on things in case somebody else is in the same position. And turns out, like everyone's in a very similar position. This is <laughs> it's rampant <laughs> in our community. And I, I think it's because product management attracts ADHD folks. I think so does founding companies. Because ADHD comes with this ability to spot connections, to see that bigger picture, to to have this really, really creative mind. And the best uh, ADHD folks seem to be the ones who are able to 
surround themselves with other people and allow them to not necessarily be the ones who own the the work themselves, but to be the ones to set direction and inspire and spot connections and tie things together, spot all those synergies and that sort of thing, right? And so do the best product managers, right? The best product managers are not the ones who are getting down there trying to do the code themselves, right? They're not disappearing off (laughs) trying to craft this perfect product. They're working with all these different areas, constantly context switching. And so, yeah, uh, I've always had this ability to spot this bigger picture and do this context switching and everything else. But it's a matter of uh, wanting to harness that and sometimes being able to just get down and actually do the, the work myself which is that balance that I'm looking for. All right, so it sounds like you've got a positive 2021 coming, hopefully as the, uh, the lockdown all goes away and, and we can start having some of the actual interactions with people again, plus obviously the kind of coping strategies that you've developed. So it sounds like 2021 is going to be a good year for you. Oh, I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I know um, you're also involved in a lot of training, and I know that at least partly because uh, we got you into to train my team uh, a little while back. That's right. Which is a fabulous experience. but. I know that you yourself are very opinionated about sort of product management and what's good product management and what's bad product management uh, and what's sort of good product company behavior and what's bad product company behavior. I'm assuming that some of the companies that you've been brought in to train are maybe more on the bad side if it comes to it. So for example, they're not very product companies or they're not got a very product focused team or anything like that. I mean, do you get involved with that sort of company or, or is everyone that you speak to and or everyone that you train kind of on on the same page as you so i often find i don't like i don't like calling companies bad but <laughs> I, no i do spot bad habits in a lot of companies and the thing is is that every organization is always trying to find the path to being more lean as in less wasteful with their resources and trying to find the best way to outperform their competition and to you know make sure that they are solving the right problems right And if you talk to individuals in the company, they're absolutely for this. But it's when you put the organization as a whole together that you find that it becomes molasses, that the organizational structures are not in place to do this. And this is where training can actually start helping because it starts introducing people in the company to new norms and starts chipping away at the old guard way of doing things and can help companies transform the way that they're working from where they were to this new way of working. And so, but usually by the time somebody's reached out saying, hey, we need help, they recognize they need help. And we're talking to the people who, the individuals who recognize that the company needs help in some way. But oftentimes I do see, now a lot of the time, I do see companies who just have leftover bad habits that they don't even realize that they're, that they're doing, but are willing to have a light shone onto it and take a stab at new ways of approaching things to, to fix those habits. So the, the 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 TLDR there is that as long as they're trying to go in the right direction, then then you can probably help them. Yes, exactly. I mean, the company has to want to change. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but you know, you can't just have a you know some expert like myself come in for a day and then promptly ignore everything um, that's been said. But you know, be, making sure that there's space and time for additional tools or processes, making sure that people understand you know what it is that they've been learning and why this is on the cards you know always makes a huge difference absolutely now i'm hoping that you're you as you know such a product celebrity in in, in many ways has a really fantastic answer for this question but i i like to ask the barbecue question to many of my guests which is 
if you are at a barbecue, once we're allowed to have barbecues again, and some random new person comes up to you and asks you what you do, now I guess it's a little bit easier for you because you can just tell them you, you, that you run a company. But if you were still a product manager, how would you explain product management to that person? Oh, it's such a good one. Um, I usually explain it around the concept of helping companies make the best decisions about what they build next. And of course, you know, if somebody dives in and asks more questions, um, then, you know, you can go into what that means. You know, it's like this, it's like that. I'm going to try to give some more analogies there. But at its heart, you know, the product team's point is to make sure that the company is solving the right problems and is hitting the right objectives. So uh, final question then for you is, again, as, as someone who's been in and around product and, and mentored and, and taught and, and spoken to product people around the world, what's one piece of advice you'd give for, for someone that wants to get into product management today? So for anybody who's just starting off in product, the most important thing to remember is that it's not your job as a product person to always have the right answers. It's your job to ask the best questions and to surround yourself with the people who have the best answers or who have the access to those answers. The worst thing you can do as a new product manager is to go in and assume that you have the right answer or act like you have the right answer, because that what you end up doing is creating a product that is only in your vision. A seasoned product manager knows that they should be surrounding themselves with different perspectives and building something that's based on the insights, the collective knowledge of the team and the market and everything around them. Brilliant. So where can people come and find you if they want to chat to you about product after this? Excellent. Well, I love chatting to people about products. So people can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find there as Jana Basto. On Twitter as Simply Basto. My DMs are open, so reach out to me there if you like. Or for best response rate, hit me up at Jana at prodpad.com and reach out to me. Let me know uh, how I can help. Sounds like a fair offer. Well, thanks very much for coming on. It's been fantastic, obviously, to hear about some of your journey, but also the very sort of open and honest way that you're discussing uh, ADHD, which hopefully will be helpful to some people that listen to this. Let's keep in touch as ever, and um, thanks very much for spending the time. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to listen to the other PodPad interviews straight away. I'd really love it if you could share this episode with friends, colleagues, or even enemies. And in either case, come back soon for more from One Night in Product.